COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online. So any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore. So we're calling for a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds. And while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The Glass Noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. This is Podco Media Networks. Hi, it's Mark. We're proud to be part of a special presentation today. First, some background. My partner, Garnett Harriman, is a senior advisor to Impact ROI, whose mission is to help organizations achieve superior social, environmental, and financial performance. He's also co-founder at Aperture VC, which aims to provide seed and Series A funding, along with a corporate partner network that invests in diverse founders and companies, with the goal of defining the new multicultural mainstream. Together, the two organizations recently formed Allies in Action, which held its inaugural event on July 8th. The Zoom-based event featured a prestigious group of speakers from the venture capital, real estate, healthcare, management consulting, and media and publishing industries. In the wake of the death of George Floyd, advocates for racial and economic equity have called for companies to take leadership. This means going beyond supportive press releases and new CSR programs to the commitment for strong diversity, equity, and inclusion policies measurable personnel growth, supportive public policy advocacy, and strategic investment in new innovation models for the emerging multicultural mainstream. This Allies in Action Forum was a very valuable, insightful discussion, and that's why we're bringing it to you today. Steve Rockland, the CEO of Impact ROI, started things off. Let's get to it. All right, why don't we get started? Um, uh, let me welcome everyone. My name is Steve Rocklin, and I'm so glad you could join us for the first Allies in Action Forum. Uh, a few quick words before I pass it on to our moderator. Uh, first, this session is gonna be taped and videoed, um, so just be aware of that. And then second, um, uh, we're not at this point activating the, the questions, um, but we're gonna be having our moderator lead that at this point. If you've recovered from COVID-19, or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. Um, I want to let people know that we have three event organizers, um, Aperture Venture Capital, uh, Good, Upworthy, and Impact ROI. 
Our organizations, I think, are unique because we're finding strategies to use measurable finance, competitive and financial performance strategies, and brand and reputation solutions to drive real and scalable change for business as related to social justice, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and wider sustainability targets. Uh, and our event sponsors, which I want to thank, are Odyssey Impact and Advantages, and they're leading the way in driving effective strategic communications to advance the cause of social justice. Uh, now, we all know that many of you, if not all of you, who registered for this Allies in Action Forum are passionate about these issues, too. And when you registered, you graciously answered a few questions that we posed. And so, Juliana, if I could ask you to help share the slide, which gives the results from those questions. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and I'm personally fascinated by these results. Um, and I want to start by noting that philanthropy in terms of addressing social justice movement issues in terms of contributing to related causes actually trails on the list. And I don't want to dismiss philanthropy. Certainly it has value, but this is the last item on the list as far as your expectations go. And I would argue that probably the expectations of most folks yet this has been either the number one or number two go-to for most companies in their response to the social justice movement. So I think that there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Um, the top item that we're seeing is for companies to use their highly capable leadership and public affairs teams to ally with social justice policies that fight systemic racism. And nearly tied with that is to set bold targets for their workforce. Uh, the remaining elements are certainly important, too, um, but this gives us a flavor, I think, of what we really want to discuss in terms of where the expectations are and where the gap is in terms of meeting them. And helping us to sort through the response to these expectations is our fearless moderator, Brian Green. So, Juliana, I think you can take the slide down at this point. And I'll just mention that Brian is, first and foremost, a good friend of mine. But in his day job, he is an incredibly accomplished resume. He currently serves as Director of Fair Housing Policy at the National Association of Realtors. And before joining MAR, Brian served for 10 years as the highest ranking career officer in HUD's Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, where he helped lead the enforcement of the nation's housing and anti-discrimination laws. Um, he's also a historian and I'd encourage everyone to check out his fascinating article in the recent issue of the Smithsonian Magazine on the Department of Justice and its role in battling the KKK. He's also a documentary filmmaker and a musician, but today he is wearing the hat of our moderator. So Brian, thank you so much, and I'll suggest that you take it from here. Thank you, Steve. Um, I, I am not wearing my hat, but I will serve as the moderator, uh, and I should say, uh, I'm not only a moderator, I'm also a panelist. So uh, you'll see me uh, wear the panelist hat uh, during this uh, presentation today too. Well, I'm really happy to join you and uh, join all of our panelists. We've got three um, panels that we're going to run through today and uh, we've just got a lot of information we want to impart. Uh, as Steve said, um, this is a really, special moment right now in the country. And uh, I think the slide that Steve shared was also very instructive in terms of um, what kind of advocacy and change people want to see in this moment. Um, 
I think we're all very encouraged at uh, many institutions stepping up and the change that uh, we're seeing at many institutions. Uh, the question for all of us is how deep and how sustained will it be? Uh, one of the uh, topical news stories right now, of course, is uh, NASCAR um, banning the Confederate flag uh, at its uh, arenas. And um, this is something that advocates have been calling for for a long time and for many reasons. One, um, it offends many people, uh, current uh, attendees at NASCAR rallies, um, but also uh, many people believe that there's a business interest in doing that. And uh, several politicians have pointed out that uh, throughout the South, that Confederate battle flag emblem uh, can be bad for business. So, you know, taking that down um, can help attract uh, customers who might otherwise be discouraged. Uh, that said, uh, it does seem largely a symbolic measure for, um, for, for many, um, even with those business implications. And the question for, for any company that uh, is changing its policies in that regard, uh, what else are they doing? You know, uh, in the case of NASCAR, you've got one African-American uh, driver currently, uh, you know, is NASCAR doing more to um, attract more drivers of different backgrounds? attract uh, more um, fans of different backgrounds, what's it doing in merchandising and targeting, the whole range of things. And I just use this as one example. So those are the kinds of things we want to dig into today. Uh, we've got um, three panels where we're talking to advocates, we're talking to investors, and we're talking to representatives from corporations themselves on what uh, they are doing and where do we need to go long term. So I want to start with our first panel, um, our advocate panel, and ask uh, our advocates <clears throat> what corporate action they would like to see um, toward racial justice and economic equality or economic equity. Um, on our panel uh, today, our advocate panel, we have uh, Jackie Copeland Carson, CEO of The Wise. Uh, we have uh, Rishi Arumi. Uh, who's a technology fellow at the Ford Foundation. And we have Melissa Potter, who's the head of social impact and communications at Odyssey Impact. So uh, I'd like to, to welcome our panel. Nice to see you all. You. Um, and uh, why don't I ask you a couple of questions uh, to get us started. And uh, you know, perhaps Jackie, if, if, if you want to uh, take the first question. Sure. Um, uh, what are your expectations for actions that uh, uh, the corporate sector should take in order to support um, social justice and economic uh, equity? And how would you get there? Yeah, so thanks for having me. And I'm going to be conscious of the time because we could all write a book about this, right? Yeah. Uh, many of us have been involved in this effort for uh, decades. And one of the most Frustrating and promising aspects of it is there's a degree of deja vu all over again. Um, so we're, I'm hoping that this time is different. I think a couple of different things. On the funding front, it is wonderful to see so many corporations step up to the plate and want to fund. The question in, that it raises in my mind is, what are you funding? What are the criteria for impact and sustainability as opposed to just checking off a box? 
I do think we need to think about funding from a comprehensive perspective, funding for entre Black entrepreneurs and Black nonprofits is wo woefully, um, there's a huge a gap and, and, and there has been um, for a very long time. And so I'm hoping that companies don't kind of um, segment funding the Black organizations into only their philanthropy departments, but look at the 1% of venture funding that's going to Black organizations, even worse for Black women, 0.0006% uh, to Black women, and actually have a social justice component to that giving supporting social enterprises as businesses that also look at sustainability. I do think we need to certainly look at hiring, um, support of vendors, but we need to move beyond diversity to true equity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, I don't wanna just cite all of the statistics because most of the people dialing in knows America has a whole lot to do. Uh, one of the most important things that needs to happen is the CEOs of, of our uh, corporate allies and the boards need to take diversity seriously uh, and inclusion and equity, not as just a moral political or political imperative, but there are multiple studies that show that businesses who do this uh, actually have better financial performance, more innovation and better financial performance. So the big question for me is in a diverse global economy, why is it so difficult for American corporations to understand that it's in their best in business interest to include everyone, frankly, and everyone includes black people? And so until the top echelons of the companies believe that and start expecting appropriate behavior from their uh, direct reports, tying compensation uh, to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, I think that we, this will be maybe a six to 12 month outcry and unfortunately we may revert to business as usual. Well, that is uh, the word from the wise where uh, Jackie is the CEO. Uh, thank you very much, Jackie. Um, uh, Rishi, same question. Um, what are your expectations for uh, the actions uh, the corporate sector can take and how do we get there? Yeah. Thank you for this. I'm really honored to be on this, um, this panel. And I will just say that I echo a lot of what um, Jackie has just shared. Um, you know, I think the thing that kind of stands out to me is that, you know, we are in an unprecedented moment dealing with the triple crisis around the pandemic and the economic recession. And this moment, you know, the national reckoning of and I think the key thing that we want to keep in mind is that um, the fabric of our, uh, our country has been structured by sort of racist, um, a racist past. So the question that we have is how do we unpack that? Now, it's been really heartening to see, you know, within the private sector, how they've moved from the sidelines into the fray and made 
you know, these statements of support um, for black communities and black lives. But I'm really concerned that, you know, this notion of systemic racism is becoming a buzzword, less of a uh, rallying cry for transformational change. And that we can, in some ways, we risk squandering this moment without a principled and coordinated response. So if there's one thing that I'd love for us to take away from this conversation, it's this. That the private sector has a unique and transformational role to play towards driving systemic change. Um, but if, we're, if, if we are serious and if the private sector is serious about embracing this role and engaging in this national project, it needs to build, breathe life into these statements um, that we've seen out and to really move to clear commitments to concrete action and radical accountability. Now, as Jackie has mentioned, we have evidence that um, greater diversity and a focus on equity can lead to improved economic and innovation outcomes. And as someone who has worked um, in the tech industry, um, I've also found that solving for marginalized communities leads to better outcomes and outputs. So I would like to issue this as an invitation to our corporate allies to authentically and creatively engage in the work that we collectively must do. And what I want to say here is that it's collective work. Um, each sector needs to be part of this. So to the question that you've asked, you know, um, I think there just really needs to be honest reflection and a reckoning in the, about the various ways that the corporate sector has perpetuated systems of racism. And the second thing is to identify how it might strategically shift the needle in areas where they have influence. And so it's a reckoning and then thinking about those areas of influence. Now, there are two ways to think about this. Um, and so the way I've, I've been thinking a lot about this work is externally and internally. On the external side, you know, the low-hanging fruit has been sort of around, being a, around building civic infrastructure. Um, we know that when we think about the helix of innovation, you have the corporate sector, you have government, you have academia. Civil society is often sidelined. And so part of this work will involve, you know, um, making contributions to organizations like Equal Justice and ACLU. Um, and we're seeing that. And that has been sort of the key way that organizations, but that's not enough. So some other ways to be thinking about that is really thinking about um, as we're thinking around economic opportunity, access to capital has been one way that communities of, of, of color and particularly black communities have been shut out. So there needs to be some thinking about, you know, how and why um, access to capital has been a challenge. I would like to point to sort of PayPal's commitment to investing $500 million um, to black owned businesses um, Netflix has also made a $100 million commitment to foster economic opportunity in Black com um, communities. These, in some ways, can be, are maybe considered small in relation to sort of their, their, their book, but this is a start. I think the third thing I will say is that companies need to examine the products and services that they put out and the ways in which they, com uh, they impact communities of color. In the technology space, we all, you know, we've, we all want safe communities. But one example um, that has been a challenge has been that AI-powered facial recognition systems are increasingly being used by police um, for surveillance. 
And this has a disproportionate impact on communities. Organizations like the Algorithmic Justice League, uh, League has spoken very clearly about the, how flawed a lot of these systems are, but to a no effect. But it's only been in the last few weeks that um, organization, uh, companies like Amazon, IBM, and Microsoft have placed a moratorium on them. Some of them, in some cases, has been permanent. Some of it is temporary. But the, you know, the key question is, why has it taken so long when organizations have put that out there? And then the fourth thing I say on the external thing would be to advocate for public policies that drive towards a more just, equitable, and resilient economy. Um, one thing that we've seen is that the Business Roundtable um, recently, you know, last year put out this statement about moving from shareholder to stakeholder capitalism. Um, again, statements are great, but then the question is um, action. So, you know, so these are four areas that I think we'd want to see on the external side. On the internal side, um, we would want to think through leadership. We have seen several appointments and job advertisements for diversity and equity and inclusion, you know, DEI leads. And I think that's great, but it's insufficient if we do not think through how companies' internal priorities, norms, and cultures continue to perpetuate inequality for communities of color and black communities in particular. Um, a recent uh, study um, put out by Stanford um, looked at the C-suite and showed just uh, just very, very low numbers around um, sort of communities of color in the C-suite. It was put out in February, and I would encourage you to take a look at that. And when you look across corporate boards, it's a very similar thing. It's generally you see one person who's on all boards. And so the, so the question is why? Um, and what can we do to, to shift this, or what is preventing a shift when we have tons of um, talented and educated individuals who should be in that pipeline, but are often overlooked. The third area would be the workforce. You know, um, there are ways in which company cultures uh, need to be more welcoming. Welcoming. We need to ensure that organizations um, are compensating uh, people from communities of color and particularly black people in an equitable manner. There is a lot of research that shows that um, black employees often make less than their counterparts when they're in similar roles. So that is one um, thing that we need to be thinking about. And I think a third area really comes to this question about sort of accountability. Um, there is just very, very little data out there. And, and when you speak to a lot of the folks in the impact investing community, there's very, very limited ESG data on sort of the racial makeup of, of, of companies. Um, I think Intel may be the only one who really puts out um, racial um, data on the, 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 the makeup of their workforce that targets um, racial, gender, and just sort of the, make, um, the, the ethnic makeup. Um, so I would like to just put out a call that that data should be made um, available and should be made public um, so that it's, it's very, very clear about what's happening. And I think the, 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 the second thing on that point is that organizations just really um, could do well to set clear and measurable targets. Um, I would like to point an example, you know, PwC has made us, um, has promised to start putting out their d diversity strategy and the results. So in some ways, 
you know, putting that information out there creates an opportunity for accountability. Microsoft recently released its commitments. Um, and when you look at sort of the way it's written, um, it really includes measurable benchmarks. So it's very clear about what they will aim to do and when. Um, and that creates an opportunity for accountability. Um, but one thing I will say is that, you know, these are very early days. These are steps in the right direction. But what we specifically need are thinking through how we can drive sustainable change. So again, I would just want to say that this is an incredible moment. Um, we do not want to squander it. Um, but we have an opportunity for real change. And, but we'll need all hands on deck um, to build trust, to collaboratively innovate, and do the work that we need to do um, so that we can build a society that we want to together. So thank you. Thank you, Rishi. Melissa, what are your expectations and how do we get there? Yeah, I, Brian, I echo much of Jackie and Rishi's thoughts and I recall back to my master's thesis. Uh, oftentimes I kick myself for how much money I spent on NYU, but today's not one of those days uh, where I examine the benefits of partnership between individuals and entities and entertainment with philanthropic causes. The concept of cause connectivity was illuminated to determine just how believable a celebrity's actions were as they partnered with or served as spokespersons in this realm of doing good. And through literature and interviews, as you all know, I found that partnership is more effective when there's a direct relationship to the cause or the nonprofit. With that, I'm extremely optimistic about the ability of the corporate sector to support racial justice and equity by moving from symbolism to measurable action. But it's going to take thorough and strategic planning to move the needle. You have pressure from external shareholders and consumers. As Steve mentioned at the top, the natural first reaction has been for corporations to write the million dollar check. It feels right in the moment with the hope that monies are going to support initiatives geared toward assisting a broad stroke of persons and communities. However, I think the secret your CMO or CDO is keeping close to their chest is that their hope that your initiatives will go beyond and directly support uh, people in places related to your areas of strength, whether that's technology, finance, real estate, uh, as a corporation, by directly connecting to your cause, you're going to move beyond a symbolic gesture to be seen as a true leader committed to change. So whether that's in financially supporting or mentoring entrepreneurs, forming strategic partnerships with institutions and organizations geared toward improving your talent pipeline, or just simply pushing the needle on economic diversity and inclusion with your support of black banking institutions. There are a number of ways that you can increase your bottom line, build consumer confidence, and avoid being that next hashtag of shame. So some of the questions that came to mind for me, considering measurable impact were, What's your supplier percentage on your outsourced goods and consultants? What are the policies that you have internally? Are you doubling down on relationships with programs like Inroads, celebrating their 50th year with over 2,000 interns being placed in business and industry with preparation for corporate and community leadership roles, or the Management Leadership of Tomorrow program, also known as MLT? which recognizes in their website and literature that only 5% of senior execs 
at self-reporting Fortune 500 companies are Black, Latinx, or Native American. These programs, which equip and embolden underrepresented groups with additional support that make them extremely successful candidates when placed. Another question to ask is, are you being innovative and thoughtful about candidates with non-traditional job experiences? You have organizations like CodePath, and you have General Assembly with their Opportunity Fund. And they're just two of the non-traditional learning paths that you can write the check to in order to support black student learning opportunities that can reinvest back into your workforce. Are your JDs actually being written to reflect that? There's a number of ways in which hiring practices can demonstrate unconscious bias. For example, are you requiring degrees from top 10 universities, which would then eliminate a vast number of highly successful students from historically black colleges and universities. These are the fertile grounds of black talent, and by providing them with the skills they need, they can become your future leaders. Take a deep look at your internal practices. Are you banking with and therefore supporting racist lenders with an adverse effect on the black community? Writing a check for one thing or to the popular organizations that we hear now, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which I formerly served as Director of Communications, Color of Change, the Black Lives Matter Foundation, uh, Spelman and Morehouse. These two uh, companies and these uh, universities, just giving to them isn't going to move the needle or change the ecosystem. As Jackie touched on, there are studies such as McKinsey who have already proven that companies with diverse leadership and board composition perform way better over time. There is a business imperative to diversifying your board of directors. Tokenism is not the solution. You must do a deep introspection into the value that diverse experiences bring into rounding out solution-driven tactics and do the uncomfortable work of expanding your own personal and professional networks to those who don't look like you. So in closing, Brian, I think that conditions are right for social change. Uh, shame should not be the motivator. What we have now are the opportunities to rewrite the course of history and change many generations to come. Thank you, Melissa. Uh, all of you um, have really underscored uh, how much talent uh, and resources uh, and potential prosperity for the country that we're leaving on the table. And I uh, want to talk more about that um, during our uh, discussion round. Uh, now I want to turn to uh, our investor panel. And uh, we have uh, William Crowder joining us, uh, who is, is uh, from an Aperture Venture Capital. Um, so William, really, I think this, the same core question, but you know, how should it invest, investors respond to this moment and uh, what will it take um, to get there? What should investors be focusing their attention on? Yeah, so, uh, thank you one for the, for the opportunity to be on the panel and, and certainly thank you for the question. Um, it's hard to follow the folks that have already spoken <laughs> because I think they touched on a lot of the, a lot of the themes that, um, and in many ways, they are pervasive across any and all of the initiatives that um, corporations are engaging in or considering the same is true for investors, et cetera. Um, you know, from, from my experience working with corporations, in particular those that have an interest in investing, um, 
capital uh, in the in the arena of diversity. Um, I think that this moment is different. Um, I think you, you're hearing the cautious optimism that this is different, but I, I think I, I would say, declarative, declaratively speaking, this moment is different. The, uh, the cautious optimism is around whether or not it's going to be different in a good way or not. Um, we know what the playbook is. The playbook is, hey, we're gonna announce a big initiative. We're investing a whole bunch of money into these organizations and that these are the causes or along these certain themes. And I think that the part that we fall short on is collectively, we don't go back to find out how that worked out. Did you actually spend the money? What did you spend it on? What was the return on that? What was the expectation that you had as an organization? You know, did you, did you make the commitment so that you could spend the money or did you make the commitment to truly invest in the money? And when I say investing the money, there's an assumption there that it's going to come back to you several times over. And so to me, that's where we have to really shift our focus um, from 2020 and beyond. It has to be beyond the commitment. What we've seen for the last four weeks, it's been fireworks. It's the fireworks. It's, hey, it's the bright lights. Everyone loves to see them. And everyone hears the noises, you see the lights, and then when it's all said and done, there's smoke, and then smoke dissipates, and then it's July 5th. And so that's where we are now. We're in this part where the show's over. And so now what are we going to do? And if you rely upon those that have made the PR announcements to be the ones that proclaim victory, then we're going to fall short. We have to start to really look at what else are you doing? How are you doing it? Um, and then what, what, what's been the outcome of that? So from an investor perspective, um, I'm pushing, I'm pushing foundations, I'm pushing corporations. I've worked with corporations in the past. I'm pushing them to go beyond the, Hey, we want to set up our own fund and we're going to invest in these founders because that usually doesn't come with any plan of action, any plan for how we're going to manage, manage that over time. You know, investing takes time. Investing in, in African-American and Latino founders takes time. It's going to take a lot more time than people are accustomed to. Um, the investors, my colleagues in the space, love to invest, and they look for the return to come in five to seven years. Um, and that may happen for some of these founders, but in most cases, it doesn't happen that way. Some of the biggest and most valuable companies that we typically engage with takes years for those things to develop. It takes sustained commitment to investing and supporting. Um, it requires making those introductions and, and supporting um, those founders in ways that many people are not comfortable doing because one, they say we don't exist. Two, they think they don't know where to find us if we do. And three, they question whether or not we have the talent and the capabilities to even go the distance. So they'll make an investment with a short list of people that they want to bring in to replace you. In a matter of a couple of years, take one mistake and you're gone. Meanwhile, we can watch people spend $400 million on a juicer that nobody needs. So the, the, the stakes are high and it requires a different level of thinking. It requires a different level of thinking at the top of your organizations and it requires a different level of thinking for the people that are not at the top of the organization but still hold a level of influence within the company and within these different foundations to continue to push leadership to say, okay, where are we with that? What have we done? What else are we going to do? What else can we do? And, and if you are an employee, say, what can I do to help make sure this moment is fundamentally different? So I boil everything down at this point 
especially if you're at an organization that has either made a public commitment or is thinking about doing that, or has at least said, we care about this issue from an investment standpoint, I'm challenging everyone in, in three areas. You know, one of those is to invest, make that true commitment to investing, that long-term commitment to investing. The second thing is to engage. You can't just write the check and then walk away. That's, that's what people did in 2010. That's why we're here in 2020. You know, that's, it's going to take more. So you've got to engage. How is your organization from top to bottom going to be supportive of what you're saying publicly? And then the last thing is to measure it. And, and how do you measure investments? Well, we measure good investments based on the return. So you can't say we're going to do this, give yourself five years to do it, not do it in years two, three, four, and five, and then come back in year six and say, yeah, we tried that already. It didn't work. So those things, those, those, those traditional ways of doing this, they're not going to fly anymore. They can't. And I think we collectively have to continue to put the pressure that says this moment is going to be fundamentally different because we're not going to go away. We're going to continue to push and to nudge and to assist and do everything we got to do to make sure that this, we don't have these same stories written in 2030 that we're reading in 2020, which, by the way, are the same stories that we read in 2010. Um, I think that's the only way that this thing is really going to move. And like someone said earlier, you know, can you strategically, or we need to strategically shift the needle. I mean, that's, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take a collective effort to do that. And you talked about these three steps, uh, William. Uh, how, do you, uh, how do you create confidence in investors that if they invest and engage, that uh, they will see this return ultimately on their investment? Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, it's so interesting because that's a question that for me as an investor in particular, someone who was asked to do this probably, well, certainly on behalf of corporations well before anyone else was asked to do it, it was a question I always had to answer, which was, well, I'm going to give you this money, but I really, you know, I'm questioning whether I want to ever get it back. And so what's so funny about that is that almost every corporation we can name, I mean, hell, we even mentioned NASCAR in this call, Right. Every single one of these entities has made money off of us. They've made money, they've made money off of us as consumers. They've made money off of us as business owners. They've banked our capital. They've done all kinds of things that would suggest that they know they can make money from us. And what we're asking at this point, and in many cases demanding, is this notion of we're not going to just be the consumer anymore and play that role. We're looking to be the partner with you. So we want the capital, we want the resources that you have, and we want to show you what we can actually do with that when it's a, in many ways, it's a fair fight. You know, we've literally been trying to do what we've been doing and have been successfully in, in successful in spite of the lack of support, in spite of the lack of capital, you know, all these different hurdles we've had to overcome. And I think that what people are going to start to see is that there is a level of uh, perseverance and and success on the horizon as a result of that perseverance that we haven't unlocked because we 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 collectively as a country in particular and as an economy we've not been willing to go to that extent now I think that this moment will be different because it's going to force people to finally invest now they won't, they may not do it the way we really want them to do it they may not do it you know out of the goodness of their heart or whatever the case may be but I, but hopefully we can strategically place some of those other components in this and say, look, your money is in, but we also need some other stuff from you, some other support, et cetera. And I think once we start to see that, I mean, we've already had people be successful 
you know, I focus on tech investing. There's certainly people of color that have been successful into, you know, from a tech perspective, but we haven't seen it. We haven't seen it at scale. And I'm encouraged by the fact that there are a new wave. There is a new wave of investors that look more like the people in this panel in particular that are saying that I want to do this, but I don't have to do it within your own structure. I don't have to come mm -hmm. and work for you and then be drowned out by the noise of all the other stuff that you do. I'm going to step out and do this for myself. And I want you to recognize the power and the potential of that. And then be an investor, be a supporter, work with the companies that I find. And through that process, ideally what we're going to see is, you know, I think, I think I could be overly optimistic and say a change of heart, but I will say that at a minimum, we'll see a change of perspective that people realize that, you know, I call it the Jackie Robinson moment. It's like, Jesus, how did we not realize we should have been doing this a long time ago? And then all of a sudden everyone wants to do it. And I think that's where we are headed. You know, the question is how long is it going to take to get there? And maybe we just got a, you know, a boost from the fireworks. Maybe that really got people moving in the right direction faster rather than uh, slower. Great. Well, thank you, William. So uh, now we, we move to the moment in our program where we, we hear from uh, corporations in terms of uh, what they can do and um, you know, how they can uh, meet these expectations, what are some examples of, of good practice, and uh, what's the evidence that they can uh, do well while uh, doing good. And uh, as I said at the outset, <clears throat> I'm not just a moderator, I'm also a panelist. Uh, and um, I am the director of fair housing policy at the, um, at the uh, National Association of Realtors, where we're not really a corporation per se, but we are uh, the world's largest trade association uh, and with a great deal of influence uh, with our 1.4 million members um, worldwide. Um, so I wanna talk a little bit about what uh, NAR is doing in this space and um, you know, what we've taken on really predating um, this larger national discussion that followed the killing of George Floyd uh, and where we need to go next. Um, so uh, as Steve said in, in, the, in the beginning, my uh, background is overseeing HUD's Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity. That's um, the arm of the federal government that enforces the laws against housing discrimination in the entire housing market and lending, you know, and uh, homeowners insurance. All of that is the responsibility of, of HUD under the Fair Housing Act. Uh, I joined NAR in um, November, and almost as soon as I joined, there was the big expose out of uh, New York, New York Newsday, about ongoing housing discrimination out in Long Island. And uh, Newsday had used testers to expose how um, agents were uh, allegedly treating people differently based on race, African-Americans, Hispanics, and Asians. And documented this with video cameras of how uh, agents provided different information to people based on race and how they steered people to different neighborhoods, the discussions they had regarding schools and crime and resale. Um, and so, you know, I came to NAR with my own plans. Uh, this certainly accelerated uh, those plans. And um, the, the first thing I did really was stress that, um, we need 
to do three things. Uh, we need accountability for real estate agents. We need culture change in the industry uh, to the extent this is still going on, address it in the culture. Uh, and of course, uh, always uh, training. But really, um, the priority, sort of training, you know, many people said, oh, we need to do training to make sure this doesn't happen. Training, of course, you know, we've been doing for decades. I mean, there's a law that's been around the Fair Housing Act since 1960s. So uh, training, yes, we need to do that, but we need to do it better and differently. You know, perhaps the kind of training we're providing is not as effective um, as it should be. But I said the, the problems are deeper. Uh, it, clearly, there needs to be a discussion of culture and what is going on in the housing industry that despite 50 plus years of fair housing law, uh, this is still happening. Uh, and then finally, of course, accountability. Um, there needs to be consequence if people violate the law. And it, it so happens that that spelled out a nice acronym, ACT, uh, A-C-T, Accountability, Culture Change and Training, um, with the priority uh, being accountability down through the training. And so for accountability, so this is, you know, we launched this in January of this year. Uh, so we sort of had this wake-up call then, and we knew there, you know, these practices existed, but with the attention, we said, you know, we need to demonstrate that this is a high priority. Uh, and so we've invested significant resources uh, in each of these things. And so with accountability, we said we need to make sure state licensing laws uh, truly provide some consequence when people engage in discrimination. Um, that, of course, is predicated some on whether or not people report it or whether people are even aware of it because the testing suggested people don't know that it's happening. It's only when there are cameras and you can see how other people are treated that you know it may be exposed. But, but that being what it is, there needs to be serious consequences. So we looked at licensing laws and we're working on uh, doing that with various states. We're also uh, recognizing that we need to do more in terms of uh, self-testing, that we need companies to look at what their agents are doing. So we're supporting an effort there so that companies can take self-corrective action. Um, and then, of course, uh, enforcing our own code of ethics around this. But on culture, just recognizing that uh, a lot of these uh, examples involve agents talking about schools and that there's an issue with schools and real estate that we need to look at and how uh, school quality can impact uh, what agents do, which they shouldn't do, but uh, that we do need to look at what the larger society is doing to strengthen schools in all areas. Um, we need to celebrate the agents who are doing the right thing. Uh, many agents, of course, are following the law um, and are doing well by you know, complying with the law. We need to hold up those examples to their peers. Uh, they're making money in the same markets um, by following the law. Um, and then we, we also recognize that uh, there's an opportunity to do innovative training, that rather than just having instructor-led training, we need you know, or, or uh, training where, you know, instructors tell people the law, uh, we need to look at implicit bias as well. Uh, insofar as some agents are intending to follow the law, um, you know, there is bias in our culture and we need to uh, help people recognize that bias. Just very recently, uh, we had a professor talking with some of our members about uh, lending discrimination and how the lending discrimination has downstream effects on real estate agents. So if African-Americans are going to lenders 
and are being turned down uh, for loans at higher rates, even when they're credit worthy. Uh, you know, agents are aware of that day in, day out, that we are seeing more um, uh, African-American consumers turn down for loans. So they may spend less time with them or um, impose more honors requirements because they expect there's going to be a problem with the transaction. So if that is implicitly biasing uh, their transactions, we need, to, we need to surface that and deal with that. So those are all things that we're doing, examples of things that we're doing in stamping out discrimination in the transaction. Uh, but we also recognize that there are structural issues in real estate. I mean, you know, I've committed my life to this work because real estate is how people acquire wealth. And we know for generations, uh, minorities have been denied that uh, intergenerational wealth um, through redlining and denial of homes. And, um, so we need to recognize the structural issues and what we need to restore. So we, we're looking at um, other more structural policy that we need to engage in. I am the staff executive for a policy committee. So a uh, key issue now is in addition to you know, act, you know, what will be our second act when it comes to policy. Uh, so I, I will talk more about that um, in the discussion round, but uh, we are engaging, you know, at the federal and state and local level on policy that uh, we as realtors want to see so that uh, uh, realtors will do their jobs um, better and uh, can be more prosperous, but also ensure that uh, all the communities that realtors are working in um, can be more prosperous communities. So, um, so that's what we're doing at NAR. Uh, I, 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 I want to suggest that we now hear from uh, Rhonda um, regarding the same questions and uh, what you are doing uh, to make an impact. Sure. Um, first, thanks, Brian, um, for the the opportunity to share that and um, for the opportunity to participate on this panel with such distinguished uh, panelists. Um, and I'll, I'll start by saying, although I look about 10 or maybe 16, I've actually been in this space um, for over two decades. So I've spent a great deal of my uh, career focused on building inclusive cultures, um, both in domestic and uh, global Fortune 200 companies. And most recently, I've had the, the privilege of um, serving as a chair for two national organizations um, focus on advancing diversity for corporate boards or uh, in senior leadership. One of those organizations is the 30% Coalition and with a grant from the Nathan Cummings Foundation, which is a social justice um, foundation, um, we were able to bring approximately 70 C-suite women um, together with nominating and uh, governance um, committee chairs, as well as public CEOs, for the opportunity to network and for folks um, to connect and discuss um, board opportunities. Uh, something that wouldn't necessarily have happened without you know, the funding from Nathan Cummings. But it, you know, I, I recognize that um, grant making isn't the end all be all, but I will share with you that um, over the years I've helped uh, many company foundations make millions of contributions to diverse organizations, not for the purpose of just making contributions for the PR, but rather for true impact that was measured and um, had a strategy attached to it. 
So in my last position at WellCare Health Plans, which is really uh, was a, a company that's mission-driven, did Medicaid, Medicare, but also a company that obviously was in the business of making money, uh, we focused on eliminating health disparities when possible and make significant commitments um, in kind as well as donations to help reduce social determinants of health. Um, so we had some cutting edge programs that I think um, you know, have been written about by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and others for the work that we did in that social determinant space. WellCare was recently acquired by the Centene Corporation, which is a larger corporation based in St. Louis, uh, Fortune 50, that um, has multiple ways of tackling, um, I guess, health disparities. One of them is um, a recent announcement that we made regarding our commitment with the National Minority Quality Forum, an independent research organization dedicated um, primarily to high-risk populations and ensuring that they receive optimal health care. We're doing some, some research studies around uh, COVID and um, doing some testing in key um, cities uh, around the country. So we're in the midst of that work. And another example is that we announced a, a health disparities task force um, that is composed of some of the, the country's leading medical minds um, because we are in a situation where we've got to figure out how to help the most vulnerable populations. So the notion of tackling um, diversity in the workplace is obviously not a new idea. Um, when I joined um, ING, the global financial services company, which was Fortune 10 at the time, um, in 2000, the company already had a visionary CEO who created what he called domestic emerging markets. So in order to um, gather uh, additional market share in the U.S., our domestic emerging markets program was focused on growth in uh, the communities that consisted of African-Americans, Latino, and women, and ultimately the Asian community. Um, the, the strategy worked. We were able to improve our, our market share and build a, a better brand in the U.S. and continue that work until we became Voya Financial as an IPO in 2014. So, you know, I mentioned all of this not to share my resume, but rather to highlight that since the early 2000s, um, in some form or fashion, I've either served as a chief diversity officer, a chief public affairs officer, or a president of a foundation, and the work was focused on building an inclusive culture in corporate America. So DNI is a journey. It is not a, something that happens overnight. Um, I think um, my CEO back in the day coined the phase, you know, it's in our DNA, and then yeah, a lot of other companies started using it, et cetera. And so it is a priority that has to show up on a corporate meeting agenda. And I'm in some respects hardened and excited to see that companies now have decided to hire chief diversity officers um, and are trying to expand the work. But I will say that hiring a chief diversity officer alone is not an automatic fix. Um, there's more work that comes along with that. Um, where that chief diversity officer sits, the, the, um, the fact that um, uh, their reporting relationship, the characteristics that a chief diversity officer has to have in terms of being someone who has tenacity and character of courage to fight racism is not, not just unconscious bias, but pure racism is something that a, that a CDO has to have the tools and the ability to do so. He has to have the, the mid-level as well as executive level support. Um, you can't just create tactics and programs, but has to go beyond that. And creating and recognizing Juneteenth is not the end-all be-all. It is a, a start, not the fix. 
So I have so much more to say, and I'll, I'll stop there. But I would like to just leave this with, um, you know, my friends in corporate America. You cannot rely on the sole, um, sole executive of color to drive the change. It is an enterprise-wide um, change that has to occur. And, you know, it starts with someone that looks like me, but it takes all of us to get it done. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Rhonda, uh, for sharing what you're doing as uh, Executive Vice President at Centene. So um, we've got Steve Rockland, uh, Impact ROI. Tell us uh, how he's having an impact. Hi, Brian, thank you. And I'm just blown away by all of the panelists. And this is one of those situations in which I'm going last and unfortunately I'm gonna be least, but I'm gonna do my best. And so I've been in this field for long enough to have seen major phases of corporate commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion come and go. And whatever progress was made, I think we can agree that it hasn't been nearly, gone nearly far enough. And right now, I think it feels like it's been stalled. And I wanna talk about some structural and procedural barriers that work as obstacles and in effect hidden forms of systemic racism. And these are areas, though, that we may be able to address, uh, not even maybe even attack more directly. I think my colleague David Wofford may be one of the registrants and participating on this call. And he and I have been working on a project that may have some interesting parallels and lessons for us. And we've been looking at the challenges of eliminating sweatshops from global supply chains and major corporations. And similar to the DEI movement, there's a feeling that the effort to eliminate sweatshop labor has stalled or certainly hasn't gone far enough. And we've been interviewing, we're in the, the midst of interviewing some of the biggest and most famous brands in fashion, food, and technology. And this is what we're learning and see if it sounds relevant to you. So the first thing is, is that we're hearing from executives that they need a much better business case in order to make the kind of scaled, high impact, no doubt about it results that we're all looking for. And this business case seems to come down to two parts. Right, the first part of this business case for the average CEO and chief financial officer is that we need to show that the commitments they're gonna make are gonna have positive impacts on share price, sales revenue, and cost reduction. Now, a few care about growth and brand too, but if we're not supporting the most important business KPIs, then we're not going to get the kind of scaled commitment to, in this case, sweatshops, but I would argue for DEI, that we're looking for. Second part of the business case comes from staff functions like the purchasing department and human resources. And we have to be honest that they actually just don't have a lot of power in the organization. All this talk about the war for talent and our talent being our most precious resource I'm not saying it's untrue, I'm just saying it's, I'm saying it's a little overhyped and that the reality kind of trails the rhetoric. And so staff functions need a business case in order to be our allies on this that says, A, what you are asking me to do in my staff function is manageable and won't add more time that I don't have. And B, that if it does add more time, you're gonna help me figure out how to find that time. And C, it has to help support the existing metrics that get people promoted or fired within their particular function. So that's the challenge, the business case that I think we have to meet. Second, companies want us to feed them both carrots and surprisingly, they are ready and want us to hit them with sticks. Now on the carrot side, 
they need and are asking for nurturing partners who are experts, in this case, in DEI, and the expertise in the realities of their business model, whether we're coming at it from the HR team, the purchasing team, strategy team, a business line, what have you. Right now, they're feeling, and I'm just the messenger here, they're feeling too forced to adapt to models and frameworks that feel alien, that are coming from civil society, and that they don't get, that they haven't been trained for, and that they're not measured against. And they're asking, they're begging for all of us in the civil society, all of us outside the company walls, to meet them where they are. Now, on the stick side, and this is really fascinating to me, the companies we're talking to are acknowledging that now is the time to rough them up a little bit. And rough them up in a couple of ways. One is, is that they're actually, and unfortunately right now they're whispering it, but I'm glad I'm hearing it at all, is that they're whispering that more aggressive public policy that sets high standards that everyone has to meet would actually be very, very welcome. And the second thing they're whispering is that activism and pressure tactics would actually be very, very welcome and help move the needle a lot. And that what they feel like is, is that there was pressure tactics were more of a thing of the 90s and a little bit in the aughts. Haven't been as much recently, and, and coming back to that would be helpful for them, strangely. So I would bet big money that everything that we're learning about sweatshops translates more or less exactly to the DEI movement right now. Now, the good news is, is that we do have some resources to help meet these needs. Um, uh, I will mention that my own firm, Impact ROI, has produced the research. It's free. It's received great reviews that show that companies that are good corporate citizens, and particularly good corporate citizens around social justice, social impact, and DEI, increase their share price by as much as 60%, increase sales revenue by as much as 20%, reduce costs by an average of $5 million. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a lot. I know that's sort of an Austin Powers moment of $5 million, but I actually think it's significant because right now, Everything that we're talking about is generally viewed as a pure cost center. And if we're showing that no, actually adopting these kinds of approaches and policies, everything that's been talked about so far, whatever additional investments that we do, will actually lead to saving money, even if it's a small amount. In some instances, there are examples of being really big. Um, that, I think, is a powerful argument. Uh, we also have a lot of uh, exciting metrics about growth and brand value as well. Uh, the research that we've done shows how companies can do this. Um, I'll try and get to more of that in the Q&A, but I'll say that two essential drivers are to deliver real social impact along the elements of social justice and to advance DEI. Now, finally, it's been mentioned a number of times, the Business Roundtable says that we have to enter into this era of stakeholder capitalism. And I think that's a smart move because they're going to be forced into it whether they want to be or not. And I think that, that what we collectively need to start thinking about, this gets into sort of the carrot and stick conversation, is that the more we pursue strategies to connect the way individuals and institutions think about their equity investing, their consumerism, and their own individual job search with the activism and social justice, justice movement messages and tactics, the more we can blend those together, the faster that's gonna influence companies and the faster change is going to happen. So I really appreciate the opportunity to speak uh, my truth on this and uh, the truth according to Impact ROI. And Brian, I will pass it back to you. Thanks, Dave. I think what's most fascinating in that too is what you said about um, companies willing uh, 
to have this, the stick brandish. And I think that maybe speaks to, you know, how uh, folks are inclined to do things if they know that their neighbors are going to do it and that that's going to be the environment that they're going to work in. Um, and so to the extent that uh, we can make uh, this movement broad, uh, as broad, as impactful as we're talking, um, we can make progress. So let's go to uh, some uh, discussion questions um, and let's return to our first panel uh, with, with Jackie, Rishi, and uh, Melissa. Um, so uh, recently, um, uh, Darren Walker of the Ford Foundation uh, said in the New York Times that corporate America has failed black America. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Do you agree with that? If we look at each and every one of the aggregate indicators, representation, equity, inclusion, belonging, funding, the answer unfortunately is a resounding yes. Corporate America has failed black America. And I, and from my perspective, um, sort of as an advocate, but also a business person, that is a lost opportunity for businesses, but it also seeds civil unrest that destroys markets. I mean, we saw an indication of that in Minneapolis, where um, I saw a fascinating interview of people who were on the more violent end of the protest, and the reporter said, you know, why are you destroying your own neighborhood? And the resounding answer was, we don't own anything. We know that not only are our lives endangered um, just for living while black, we know we can't get loans. We know we can't live in certain areas and our kids can't get good educations in the neighborhoods where they live. People had a very cogent and kind of unassailable social critique of the system. So. A challenge is because of this failure of corporate America, many black people do not feel they have any opportunity to own the means of production. And that is dangerous for our democracy. Obviously we are, um, you know, black communities are experiencing carnage right now. One statistic is that 46% of small businesses, black businesses have, have closed as a result of the recession. And I sometimes feel that as leaders, we don't fully recognize the rapid fire destruction of this pandemic economy on top of continuing legacies of structural uh, racism and exclusion. So it's not just in best business interests, it really is fundamental to the functioning of our democracy that black people and all people have access to the new global means of production, including um, technology, um, but also uh, jobs that pay livable wages, that allow people to eat, have medical care and housing, and access to transportation and education, and equal opportunity uh, for business investment and we cannot do it with government alone or philanthropy alone 
corporate America has to understand that racism destroys their markets. I echo your sentiments, Jackie, and I would say with that, um, the black consumer feels so invested in so many companies and it's a sense of disrespect when you look at their internal workings and you see so much of their public facing words, their posts, their Black Lives Matter statements not being reflective of the reality, whether that's financially or through staff and any other statements that they may have previously and historically made. I don't think it's too late. I've always been one to ask the teacher for extra credit, and I think now is the opportunity to seek that extra credit by tapping into communities and really putting your ear on the ground, and that starts with CEOs. Uh, it's not the chief diversity officer. It's not the one black face, as Rhonda shared. It really is from the top down that they're going to get the investment and buy-in of uh, internal stakeholders who are going to recognize my job may be on the line if I don't make this a priority. And so with that threat there and with the emphasis placed on seeking extra credit from the communities that have invested in them and created decades of dividends, I think that we have an opportunity to see some change, but it's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of uh, commitments to conversation. Conversations can then turn to actions. So look internally, look at your affinity groups as a great resource and truly believe what you're being told. I think that uh, failure is not an option anymore right now, uh, coming from the world of communications and public relations. You can go from being a billion dollar brand to you know someone with not much worth at all if you get something so simple very wrong these days. Um, so, that's what I would just encourage to, to look internally and to start from the top down. And Rishi, um, what would be effective in getting these companies to reflect on the impact that they're having in perpetuating systemic racism uh, or failing to recognize uh, what truly is uh, the systemic racism in the society? So I think, um, thank you for that question. I think, you know, as I said earlier, there are ways in which um, a lot of what we see is historical. So I think it's really trying to understand the ways in which um, these histories are perpetuated down the line. Um, I think that we don't do enough to interrogate um, the why behind the, t the status quo. So I think that's one place to start. I think the other place would be really to think through what are the incentives that drive a company? And, um, you know, Steve, you brought up some of the key things, you know, around, you know, at the end of the day, um, there has generally been a focus on the bottom line. Uh, but more and more, we're thinking, we're needing to think through sort of the ESG, the environmental, social, and governance side of things. And so to the extent that we get serious about what are the incentives um, that are driving, um, but also what is the risk of not focusing on sort of the negative externalities, you know, um, we will maintain the status quo. And I think the third thing um, really gets to this question of, who are um, companies answerable to? Do they see themselves as citizens of 
the country, of the economy, alongside all of the other actors? And if so, you know, a lot of this talk around moving from shareholder, you know, because I think in a lot of cases, um, companies and boards are, are, are uh, responsible, you know, when you think about the board and investment side of a company, it's really their fiduciary duty. Um, and often that's to the shareholder. And so to the extent that we're moving away from just that focus to thinking through who the range of stakeholders are, um, if we don't do that, we maintain the status quo. So I think that, you know, there are different ways to be thinking about it, but at the end of the day, it's really what are the incentives that drive a company and in what ways are we um, looking to shift that um, in a way that is meaningful? Because of course, you know, you want to uh, generate value, um, but it's at what cost? Um, who is bearing the risk of return? Um, when we look at some of the models, uh, particularly um, tech-driven models, um, and that when I'm thinking about the Ubers and Lyfts and whatnot, um, they are generating some sort of value. Now, there's a question about, you know, um, the revenue models and whatnot. But really, the business model has been around shifting risk from one entity to another, um, from the powerful to the less powerful, from the companies to the workers. And so, you know, interrogating again, you know, what are the incentives? Um, in what ways is the model shifting risk? And in some ways, thinking through, how the share of that you know, value that is generated is, um, you know, in what ways is it shared more broadly? Thank you, Rishi. Um, well, what about looking at this from the, the uh, investment angle? Uh, William, um, I'm curious, uh, is there a investment filter that you might look at these issues through that could drive a better corporate policy? Yeah, um, I, I think that there's a there's a natural inclination to um, to move to this 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 approach which says, "Hey, I'm only going to invest in you because you are a woman, or because you are black or brown, or whatever the case may be." And the 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 output that we're looking for is one that speaks differently about. Who can be an, who should be an entrepreneur? Who can be an entrepreneur? Who can be successful? It's the input part of this that's been broken. And when you take these artificial filters and you just say, "Well, this is the reason why I'm doing it," and it's a very superficial analysis, then you don't get the outputs that you're looking for. You don't get the high quality on the back end. What what we're hoping to see, and what I'm hoping to see, is that investors will finally realize that they are biased. And they need to own that. You know, you can't have a situation where you're you're annually raising hundreds of billions of dollars. I think 2019, 130 billion dollars of venture capital was raised. And roughly speaking, over the last 10 years or so, two percent of that you can count on two percent of that going to an African American founder. So you're talking about 2.6 billion dollars in total when everyone else has got over 120 to, to play with literally sometimes figuratively to play with and so it requires a different perspective and i think that perspective is this which is i need to look at the world through the lens of the world which means that there are problems there are challenges there are difficulties that people are trying to account for and to solve for in many times and in many ways in instances using technology to do so 
And the markets that they touch, the, the, someone mentioned uh, the, the phrase earlier, the, the domestic emerging market, you know, these, these, these segments that they're touching, they look like these people that haven't been able to raise the capital for ever since the industry was created. And so, but what we also know is that there is a fundamental change happening, demographically speaking, in the country. Multicultural mainstream, it's happening. And so this notion that you don't have to pay attention to where this person came from, who they are, what, you know, what experiences have they had, et cetera, that, that's, not, that's not a sustainable strategy. So all of these folks that have made tremendous amounts of money over the decades are going to eventually come to a realization that I can't continue to invest in that way. I have to now build a system that allows me to tap into the insights of different people. I have to understand what they're dealing with, what they're seeing, where they think the world is going. You know, we, we've seen these big companies scale, um, you know, and, and Uber is a perfect example since that was mentioned earlier, and we can pick on them, we can pick on Lyft, we can pick on a lot of others. But those companies have all been successful in the way that we determine success right now. None of them are as successful as they are without leaning on, in many ways, sometimes even exploiting the existence of multicultural individuals as consumers, as producers, as employees, as central workers now, which is a new term. Like all these things mean that we matter. And it's time for corporations, investors, it's time for everyone to recognize that on a level that's higher than simply just saying, hey, because you're black, I'm going to invest in you. It takes more than that. Um. William, thank you for that. I tell you what, I'm going to make life easier on uh, Brian so he doesn't have to talk to himself as moderator and panelist. And so uh, I'll take over the questions for the corporate panel. But Ron, I'm going to start with you. And one of the things that we hear either very aloud or sometimes whispered, this refrain from the C-suite that, quote, we just don't have the pipeline of diverse candidates. How do you respond to that? Well, they just haven't met those candidates. And so I typically um, would say to, to the CEOs that you, you really, and someone mentioned this earlier, you have to expand your network. Um, when you are trying to hire a C-suite executive, if you haven't um, successfully planned and had a succession planning where the diversity is in, in the pipeline, then you know the, use the, whatever network of folks that you have within your organization to introduce you to a diverse candidate. Um, make sure that you are employing more than the Rooney Rule just for the sake of having the Rooney Rule, um, but making sure that executive search firms are bringing you qualified um, diverse candidates. Because, you know, we mentioned this earlier too, tokenism is not something that anyone benefits from, right? So at the end of the day, you want to have folks in positions who are qualified, and we exist. Um, we definitely exist. I, I have friends that look like me, who perform like me in corporate America every day. So it's not like we're some hidden gem. It's just that you may not have expanded your network wide enough to identify us. And there are ways to do that. Um, you can partner with a ton of, of organizations to introduce you to uh, diverse candidates, the Latino uh, corporate directors, 
um, Association is, a, is another organization. You know, obviously I, I mentioned 30% coalition earlier, but Executive Leadership Council, another organization that I, I chaired um, a few years ago, also has a, a tremendous pipeline of diverse talent and is always looking for um, opportunities to post uh, jobs or corporate board opportunities um, that, that their membership could tap into. So it's just expanding your, your network. Fantastic. And Brian, uh, let me ask you, you know, tell us a little bit about your thinking in terms of what's necessary to get real buy-in to embed racial justice and equity thinking in the companies. You know, what, what would you say are the top one to three most important things? You know, I think data helps um, to be able to show folks uh, what they're leaving on the table uh, by not, um, one, diversifying internally and by not uh, meeting the external markets. Uh, you know, my background, of course, is housing and no doubt, uh, you know, addressing uh, segregation in our society and uh, ongoing discrimination in the housing market uh, uh, really is, is, you know, reducing, or the failure to address it is re reducing uh, the gross domestic product of the United States. And, you know, we, we have uh, all number of communities where uh, our education could be stronger uh, if we were investing in those communities. I believe it was uh, uh, Caroline Kennedy, who I heard recently, describe how uh, American education um, would be top in the world, but for carving out uh, segregated African-American and Hispanic communities where we haven't made the investments in schools. And a lot of that goes hand in hand with, um, uh, with racial segregation. Uh, so just thinking just broadly in terms of uh, the potential prosperity of America, if we roll up our sleeves and, and deal with those problems, and not mention all the downstream benefits uh, in a you know in a professional world, if we can do more to improve education. Um, but um, you know, coming back to, to real estate, um, we also need you know in our governance, uh, in our membership, uh, more diverse uh, representation who recognize these issues, uh, who recognize that our Segregation in the country is not uh, de facto, uh, but actually uh, the result of official policies and uh, longstanding practices. So um, I think people are beginning to see more of this. I mean, just in terms of uh, you know, what information people are, are sharing, you know, online or, or talking about in, in the public square, I think people are reflecting just on how much wealth. Uh, in this country was uh, stolen and how much wealth, uh, you know, potential there is to create uh, if we can get over some of these obstacles. And uh, right now, I think uh, sharing the data, sharing the potential, uh, highlighting the practices, highlighting places where, you know, things are better uh, may make um, a persuasive case. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it. And I will now pass the baton uh, back to you. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> so um, just to um, follow up, uh, I suppose um, we are at, we, yes, we are at, at the close of our, our, our program. 
And um, I heard just so many wonderful things from, from all of you. Uh, this has really been uplifting for me just to hear what you're each doing in uh, your respective worlds. Um, I, I, I think we have said almost everything we need to say, but I want to give everyone an opportunity uh, to offer a closing statement that may just crystallize and drive home uh, the points you've made today. So why don't I, I start with Jackie, if, if you want to take a minute and, and just uh, recap uh, your most important points. Um, I think kind of echoing what others have said, we have this perhaps somewhat unique historical moment that will be short-lived to amplify what works and fund it for sustainability to promote equity. Um, and whether it's in funding and hiring and pay and housing, all of the different fields that we've talked about. I think there's been a lot of research around what works. We need to uplift it and move it forward while we have this opportunity. One way I'd like to invite everyone to participate in an event that I'm a part of called Black Giving and Beyond, which is uh, on August 1st to celebrate Black Philanthropy Month and an opportunity to see if we can come together to create really a, um, a game plan a set of new black funding principles for philanthropy and investment to create a kind of Marshall plan to accelerate and scale the kind of rebuilding that needs to happen post COVID for black communities. So thank you for having me as part of the conversation. And I put information about that event in the chat. Thank you. Um, Melissa, some final words? Yeah, I mean, in closing, I think there's just three issues that leaders need to address in order to find success. Those for me are consumer activism, leadership accountability, and digital transparency. So within an organization that doesn't have its own moral accountability, it is the business case for diversity that's going to get your attention. Looking at the Washington-based NFL team, whose name I won't mention here, They've long been criticized, but it was only once FedEx and Nike made remarks that their owner reconsidered uh, the rebranding and naming of that team. Beyond the business case, you have a moral and social responsibility that create that trifecta of company success in this realm. Leaders need to make bold moves with resources. It's going to take a new outlook on staff training to say, hey, this is our direction and this is what we value so that it seems more than rapid response or crisis communications or even an extra workload on your staffers. From the inside out, staff members need to be concerned about being an outlier. What we want are performative measures that have positive social pressures attached to them. Lastly, I think CEOs need to be authentic. It's okay to take a minute and collect your thoughts, gather your strategy, and be transparent while you're doing so. You can let your stakeholders know, hey, I, you know, I'm on a listening tour. I'm reading the books. I'm watching the movies. I'm speaking with leadership of diverse organizations to develop strategies on how we move forward with true effective change. So, thank you. Thank you. Uh, some final Rishi, some final thoughts. 
Yeah. I think I'll just go back to what I said earlier, um, that I think, you know, moving from these statements to clear commitments, um, I think that it's, you know, really putting it out there, saying what you're, what you're going to do. Um, the second piece will be really thinking through um, action, you know, so both externally and internally. And it's, it's, it can't be either or both, it, it, uh, either or, it should be both. And the third thing will really be around accountability, um, really setting measurable targets. And, you know, I think, I believe, as um, William mentioned, you know, um, thinking a lot about how we measure those targets. Um, you know, they say what, um, you know, unless you, if you, unless you measure, you know, what measure, what is measured gets um, done. And so um, we want to be in that space where we're measuring these things um, such that, you know, 12 months down the line, we've not um, shifted to um, the status quo or business as usual. Thank you. Great. Uh, William, some final thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. I'm, I'm had a technical difficulty, but I'm back. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I would just, um, I'd say that, that, that my perspective on the opportunity of this moment is that I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that we realize that um, diversity investing and this progress that everyone is craving for, um, that, that we realize it's a team sport. You know, this is not something that's going to be sponsored by one particular company with their logo on it. It's going to take everyone being involved, um, all corporations, all, all, all mission-aligned organizations, foundations, et cetera. Everyone can play a role here. Um, and even beyond that, I think that within those entities, within those organizations, every single individual uh, within those organizations can play a role as well. You know, I mentioned holding, holding folks accountable in this moment, and I can't, I can't stress that enough. Um, you know, one of the things we're doing with Aperture is we believe that we can, we can make a significant amount of change and drive a lot of impact in this space by bringing together multiple corporations, multiple entities, all of which have a unique set of assets and resources that if you find a way to coordinate those in a, in a fashion that's beneficial for the, for the founders, for the companies, for these visionaries of these new companies, that you can really drive the needle in terms of changing the perspective that people have about entrepreneurs, but then also reaping the benefits of being an investor in what we consider to be the emerging multicultural mainstream. And I think that we're all going to start to see that that's been the missed opportunity for decades. And hopefully 2020 to 2030 will be one of the first decades in which we see that everyone is kind of taken that to heart and has done something about it. Right. Um, Rhonda, final thought. Sure, quickly. Um, I mentioned what wasn't an automatic fix, but what I think is a fix is for um, there to be true understanding of diversity in your workforce and making sure that they feel valued and um, by learning how to leverage them appropriately and utilizing them for a safe zone, as Melissa alluded to, if you don't understand and don't, don't know, you know, how can you, if you don't ask? So get to your safe zone and, and ask appropriate questions. And ultimately, I think um, you'll have a better understanding of your workforce. Great. Um, well, let me offer a thought before uh, turning things over uh, to Steve to close. I mean, again, uh, I just want to thank you all um, and thank uh, um, 
Impact RI for asking me to join you all as a moderator. Um, I just really want to stress how uh, in the work that I do in housing, we really see housing uh, as um, the great foundation for social equality. Um, having a house and having equity in housing uh, creates wealth for individuals, creates wealth for families, uh, inter intergenerational wealth, uh, the opportunity to send children to school, to make uh, a wide array of social contacts. Um, and many of the issues that we're trying to address, uh, the broad social inequality issues we're trying to address, have their roots in uh, either poor housing policy or poor uh, housing practices. So uh, we're committed to that uh, and doing more and not just uh, stamping out uh, discrimination in uh, housing practices, but effective advocacy. And I want to say that you know, while this, uh, you know, many debate whether this is a moment or a movement, uh, the difference between those two words are the letters V and E. And I think to the extent that we continue to educate on the viable economics uh, of what we're all advocating, uh, we can make a long-term difference. Um, we can make that case. I think it's it's evident, you know, we're all here in this country with great opportunity, great prospects, and the potential for uh, great prosperity for, for our country. Uh, we need to make the case that corporations uh, need to tap into it. So with that, uh, thank you again, and I turn things over to Steve. I wanna say thank you so much to all of our panelists. It has been incredible, informative, stimulating. I think that I can speak for the event organizers and Aperture VC, Impact ROI, and Good Upworthy that we are more committed than ever to take what you're, the lessons you're teaching us and to try and connect the dots. Because what we have to do is pursue more of an intentional strategy that connects business cases with advocacy and everything in between. And I think that we need to sort of coordinate much better. And that's why we're committed to keeping this dialogue going and moving it to, to action. So we will be back with you in the Allies in Action uh, process to uh, see what comes uh, next and further conversation and further um, uh, projects. And I'd also just like to thank our event sponsors, Advantages and Odyssey Impact as well. Um, we will do our best to try and figure out the recording and video of Zoom and try and make this available wide and far. So thank you so much again to everyone and please everyone be safe, be well, be healthy.